We come again this morning to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26. I would encourage you to turn there with me this morning. In a few moments, we will be looking at verses 17 through 30. I find it interesting that people seem to always be looking for a miracle. Have you noticed that? Always looking for something sensational. Some supernatural display of God. Recently, we were in Moline, Illinois, visiting Nancy's mother. And suddenly there came on the news this news announcement that the Virgin Mary had been spotted underneath the Rock River Bridge. And for the life of me, I couldn't see it. I could see some lights shining off of um, some of the bridge pylons, but it was fascinating to me that there were literally hundreds of people for several days that gathered there, especially in the evenings, to see the Virgin Mary. They had lit candles, most of them all, of course, Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism being primarily a Mary cult. But they had hundreds and hundreds of candles and they had built a flower altar and people were weeping and sharing testimonies of what a wonderful day this was and how God had spoken to them through this glorious supernatural revelation. And I thought, how sad. Desperate people, desperate people, ignorant people, people who have no understanding of the truth, people that are frankly spiritually dead, the Bible would say, worshiping some figment of their imagination. And of course, this is routinely repeated all over the world in every imaginable false religion. But folks, if you really want to see something that is sensational, if you really want to see things that are miraculous, all you need to do is look into the Word of God and behold the miracle of divine providence to see how consistently all through Scripture God is at work, a sovereign God orchestrating all of the events of history to accomplish His glorious purposes in redemption. And today's text will provide a great illustration of that, as you will see in a moment. I came across a quote. I love a lot of the old Puritans. This one happened to be by a man named Octavius Winslow. And here's what he says about God's providence. And I put it in your bulletin this morning. God rules the kingdom of providence. His hand is moving and controlling all events and circumstances, national and social, public and private, giving birth and shape and tent to those phenomena in the history of nations and to those affairs in the history of individuals, which to human perception are often shrouded in mystery so dreadful and profound. Let this view of God's providential reign hush all murmurings at our lot making us content with such things as we have, assured that He will never leave us nor forsake us. Well, today we will witness the unfolding of God's predetermined plan to provide a Savior that would redeem His people and glorify Himself. A plan that was decreed in eternity past, A plan that can never be thwarted by man or by demon. A plan that humbles every observer, causing us to really bow down and worship our God and marvel at His sovereign power and His infinite love. Now, having said that, follow along as I read our text this morning, beginning in verse 17 of Matthew 26. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, 
The teacher says, my time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. He said to him, You have said it yourself. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It is now Thursday of the Passion Week, as you may recall in our study over the past many, many months. It is the day before his crucifixion, the last day that Jesus will spend with his disciples. The Lamb of God is now approaching the altar of sacrifice, an event promised by God. We read, for example, in Titus 1-2, the God who cannot lie promised this before time began. This was, according to the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Timothy 1.9, his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So, folks, this is not something that is going to catch Jesus by surprise. In fact, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 the one promised to defeat Satan is moving inexorably towards his victory. The Paschal Lamb, pictured in the first Passover, some 1,500 years prior, when Israel was delivered from Egyptian bondage, is now about to be offered precisely as God had ordained it. In fact, everything Jesus is now doing is in perfect fulfillment of God's sovereign decree. We read, for example, in Acts 2.23, the Apostle Peter would later say that Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Hence, the title of my sermon this morning is The Predetermined Plan. In Revelation 13, verse 8, we read that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, before creation, God's eternal elective purposes in salvation were established. And absolutely nothing can stop what he has decreed. And in this text this morning, I wish to draw your attention to three remarkable demonstrations of his unassailable, his unalterable, his predetermined plan, a miraculous display of divine providence manifested in three ways. Number one, we will see it in the Passover transformation. We will secondly see it in the betrayal treachery. And thirdly, we will see it in the promised triumph. First of all, let's focus on the Passover transformation. And it's important for you to understand the setting here. In verse 17, it says, now on the first day of unleavened bread. Now, you might recall that leaven in the Bible symbolizes influence. And it's usually a symbol of a worldly, wicked influence that somehow dishonors God. Leaven or yeast, when it is added 
to bread influences that bread by the process of fermentation and causes the bread to rise and ultimately to soften. And we read in Scripture that when God first delivered Israel from Egypt, he told them to take no bread that was prepared in Egypt as a reminder that they were to leave behind all of the wicked influences of Egyptian paganism. So every year from there on, they were to remove all the leaven from their houses, not just the bread, but from their houses and eat only unleavened bread for seven days. And we read about this in, in Exodus uh, chapter 12. By the way, it's interesting that even to this day, many Orthodox Jews, not fully understanding the, the new covenant, still adhere to the old. And many of them, uh, and I had friends growing up, had many Jewish friends growing up and, and still have many Jewish friends, but... Um, they will, to this day, take leaven and they will go through the house and they'll throw some behind the refrigerator. They'll throw some behind the stove. They'll throw some behind the freezer, behind the couch. They'll lift up uh, the little vents where our air comes out, throw a little bit down there. They throw it everywhere around and then they meticulously go and they clean it all up in an effort to somehow demonstrate their desire to be holy and, frankly, earn God's love and His righteousness. Now, the Passover celebration, you must understand, began the day before the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. Therefore, because of the proximity of the two feasts on the Jewish calendar, both celebrations could be designated by calling it by either name. You could call it either Passover or unleavened bread. But what's fascinating, you will remember that according to the Mosaic law, there was the requirement that the Passover lamb had to be selected on the 10th day of the first month. And that lamb had to be taken into the household for inspection and for endearment. And this would have been on Monday of the Passover week, of the actual Passion Week of Christ as well, as we might say. And that would have been on, guess which day? The day of the triumphal entry. That was when the Lamb of God was presented. And everyone had an opportunity to observe Him, to scrutinize Him there on the temple. And ultimately, even Pilate would later say, I find no fault in him. Now, this means that the disciples would have already selected a lamb and they would have selected their lamb for the Passover feast on that same Monday when Jesus had come into Jerusalem. And since they were staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany, which is a little suburb there on the side of Bethany, it's most likely, we don't know for sure, but probably that lamb that they would use for their sacrifice was being kept there. And they would have also purchased the, the wine and the unleavened bread and all of the necessary fruits and nuts and, and, and herbs needed to properly observe the Passover meal. And they probably purchased a lot of those things now here on this Thursday morning. So with this in mind, and knowing that rooms were at a, at a premium during the time, this time in Jerusalem, when probably several million, as many as two million plus Passover observers would have been added to the ranks of Jerusalem. Knowing all of that, in verses 17 and 18, we read that the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Now, folks, it's important. Let me pause for a second. The word time here is kairos. It comes from the word kairos in, in Greek. And it's a very interesting term for time. It literally refers to a specific, predetermined, set moment in time. And that's what he's saying. My time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, by the way, according to Mark and Luke's gospel, we know that 
the man they were to meet was a man that would be carrying a water pitcher, probably a, a servant. And we know that Peter and John then uh, followed him uh, to the, the, the home where they were uh, to meet. And there, according to Mark 14, we read that they found a large upper room furnished and ready. By the way, the question might arise in your mind, why so secretive? Well, the answer to that is quite simple. To keep Judas off balance. Remember, Judas is going to try to betray him. But it was not yet God's predetermined time. And so, he says, my time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover. Now, again, it's fascinating here. The Greek grammar is in what we would call the prophetic present tense. And it's literally stating the future as if it had already arrived. I am to keep the Passover. And obviously the Holy Spirit used the absolute most perfect grammar to articulate this truth. And what he's literally saying here is that the Lord Jesus is going to celebrate the Passover at the precise time it had originally been decreed in eternity past. And nothing is going to change that. The perfect Passover lamb who did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, according to Matthew 5:17, is now remaining perfectly obedient to the law. And he is going to keep the Passover. So in verse 19, we read that the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So Peter and John obviously took their little Passover lamb to the temple. By the way, only two men were allowed to carry a lamb into the, the temple. Uh, this was uh, to avoid overcrowding. You can imagine if there was a whole group of people that went in. And if you know anything about a lamb that size, it would probably take a couple of guys to kind of grab a hold of the, the little critter and carry him in. And so... There was about uh, 250,000 lambs that would be slain there on a typical Passover. And by the way, all of them had to be slain um, at twilight. We read about that in Exodus 12, for example. By the way, twilight literally means between the two evenings. And so those lambs had to be slain between the hours of 3 and 5 p.m. Work would cease at noon and normally there would be just a few priests there, but now all 24 divisions of the Levitical priesthood would be on hand and they would take the, the lambs that were brought. They would slaughter them. They would dress the animal. They would literally toss the blood on the altar and they would burn the portions uh, of, of fat upon the altar. And then they would rewrap the animal in his own skin and they would dress it, making sure that the legs were unbroken and the head was attached to the carcass. And then they would return that to the worshiper, in this case, Peter and John. And then the two would, uh, would, would take it back home to be roasted. And we know, according to Scripture, that you were to roast the whole lamb. And they would literally place the lamb on, on, a, on a stick. We would call it a spit. And it would be a stick of, um, of pomegranate wood and they would have it would be with its head and its legs folded into the cavity of its rump is the way they would do that. And then later on, they would eat that lamb with the unleavened bread and with the wine, which, by the way, was always diluted. In fact, it was so diluted, you would have to drink several gallons to even get a buzz those people that want to argue that somehow it's okay to kind of get a little high every now and then because, after all, Jesus drank wine. Well, you really need to think that through again. But especially on Passover, they would doubly dilute the wine to avoid the, the sacrilege of drunkenness at such a sacred time. And then they would also um, uh, eat the bitter herbs that God had re re required them to eat this would remind them of the bitterness of their bondage in Egypt. And the bitter herbs were also dipped in, in a, a thick brown paste of, of, of finely ground apples and nuts and dates and pomegranates, a paste called harasheth. And they would dip that in there so you would have the bitter with the sweet. 
And that brown paste symbolized the hardship of mixing the mud and the clay to make the bricks in Egyptian bondage. So again, God is very, very concerned that they understand from whence they have come. Something that we need to keep in mind as well. And you will see the parallels later on. And often they would add even a cinnamon stick to the Harasheth. And that would represent the straw the, that they needed to use uh, in building the bricks. And again, the, the Harasheth would remind them of the, the sweetness of deliverance. Now, notice in verse 20, when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. It's very important for you to understand. Luke adds something that is very important here, and that is that Jesus longed really to celebrate this solemn meal with them. Because in Luke 22:15 it says that he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why? Because he needed to prepare them for the trauma that they were about to endure. He needed to prepare them for what was about to transpire. And here the Savior, the Lamb of God, moving towards the cross, knowing all that that was there before him, was still unselfishly committed to loving his disciples, putting them first. Now, it's interesting, and maybe some of you are asking this. I know I did many years ago. How could Jesus possibly celebrate the Passover meal on the proper day and at the same time be offered up as the sacrificial lamb on the same day, on the Passover day. How do you balance that? Well, as we look at Scripture, we see that Jesus and the disciples were celebrating Passover here on Thursday evening. Yet John's gospel recognizes Friday as the legitimate Passover day, John 19.4. In fact, John even states in the, in, the, in the same verse that Pilate finally agreed to Jesus' crucifixion about the sixth hour, which would have been noon on Friday. Oh, the History Channel loves stuff like this, don't they? The History Channel notorious for its distortion of truth and, and, its, and its denial of the authority of Scripture. Aha, we've got a contradiction here. And they get all of the liberal scholars on there to try to make everybody think that somehow the Bible's got some problem. Well, it is interesting. We even find that according to Matthew 26 verse, or 27 verse 46, that three hours later, in other words, after afternoon there, after that sixth hour, about the ninth hour, Jesus was on the cross. And that's when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So again, the question is, how can there be both a Thursday and a Friday Passover? And clearly a crucifixion on Friday. Well, the answer, dear friends, is once again wrapped up in the predetermined plan of a sovereign, omniscient God. Let me explain it to you. The Jews calculated the beginning and the ending of days differently based upon whether or not you were from the northern part of of Israel, which would be the land of Galilee, or the southern part, which would be the area of Judah and Jerusalem. So Galileans in the north calculated days from sunrise to sunrise. Those in the south, in Jerusalem, calculated it from sunset to sunset. So, Jesus and the disciples, being Galileans, considered Passover to begin at sunrise on Thursday and end at sunrise on Friday. They weren't breaking the law. That was perfectly acceptable. But the leaders in Jerusalem considered it to begin at sunset on Thursday and end at sunset on Friday. So, they too were being obedient to God's law. What a fascinating overlap. And dear friends, I would submit to you that this once again is part of God's predetermined plan. John MacArthur made an interesting comment with respect to this, and I quote, that variation, referring to the variation in the way you calculate days, doubtlessly caused confusion at times, but it also had some practical benefits. 
During Passover time, for instance, it allowed for the feast to be celebrated legitimately on two adjoining days, thereby permitting the temple sacrifices to be made over a total period of four hours rather than two. That separation of days may also have had the effect of reducing both regional and religious clashes between the two groups, end quote. But beloved, think of this. Only the omniscient mind of God could ever conceive of such a variation. Do you think for one second that this kind of coincidentally happened? Think of this variation. One that would legitimately allow Jesus to celebrate the last Passover while at the same time making it possible for him to be the Passover lamb. That is inconceivable to me. I don't have to go look under some bridge on some river to see a miracle. All I have to do is use my mind and look into the Word of God. And I am humbled once again at the providence of God. Absolutely astounding. So Jesus sits down to eat the Passover meal according to the predetermined plan. But we also see the divine orchestration of God in, secondly, the betrayal of treachery. Notice verses 20 through 22. Now, when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. Now, folks, imagine the shock here. One of the twelve followers of Christ would betray him? Inconceivable. But you know, that whole evening was anything but calm and relaxed. Let me remind you of some other things that were going on. We know that there, of course, was a ceremonial washing of the hands just before the meal. Any of you who have been to Israel, as I have, you will know that that's what you do. They bring around the a little bowl of hot water and a little towel, and you kind of ceremonially wash your hands. And, of course, this symbolized the need for purity of heart that, that can only come through the cleansing of humble confession and, and, and divine forgiveness and so on. But sadly, the outward cleansing did not accurately reflect what was going on in their hearts because we know from Luke 22 that it was during this time, as they're getting ready to eat the Passover meal, that a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest once again broke forth. Now, can you imagine that? They're arguing once again who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Because they're still confused here. They're still thinking, okay, you know, maybe tomorrow he's going to bring in the kingdom. And by the way, it was probably then that Jesus shocked them by washing their feet, according to John 13. And after that stunning object lesson, I can only imagine how mortified the disciples would have been. <laughs> like naughty children caught in some great mischief. I'm sure they were humbled. And as I think about it, how easy it is, dear friends, how easy it is to play the hypocrite. To go through the motions of piety while entertaining thoughts of self-serving pride in your heart. But betrayal? My, I mean, th th this was the coup de grace here. Th th this was the, the death blow. And they understood the term that Jesus used for betrayal. It was one that comes from a Greek term, paradidomai. It, it means to... Yes, to betray, but to literally hand someone over to an executioner. Somebody's going to do that? One of us? And I'm sure that suddenly the earlier words that Jesus had spoken concerning his impending death struck deep into their hearts. But worst of all, how, how, could, how could a trusted companion, one of us, possibly be so treacherous? And John's account indicates that they were truly clueless. They, they, they didn't know who it was. It wasn't like they all kind of, kind of looked over at Judas. They, they, they just didn't know. By the way, friends, never underestimate the cleverness of hypocrisy. Never underestimate the wickedness 
of the chameleon forms that hypocrisy can take on. I've seen it so many times. Remember how Satan disguises himself as a red devil with horns and a pitchfork and fire breathing out of his mouth, right? No. He disguises himself as an angel of light. How many times I've seen people who are just so humble and so soft-spoken and kind and the Word of God just drips from their mouth. They are so sweet and they infiltrate a church and like a terrorist bomber, things don't go their way and they blow everybody up. This was what was going on with Judas. In fact, Luke tells us that in Luke 22, verse 23, that the disciples began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Surely not I. And, you know, again, if anybody who would, would have suggested Judas, they would have said, no way. Judas? Our, our, our trusted treasurer? You've got to be kidding me. It's interesting, verse 23. Jesus answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Now, since this was true of all of them, as they had dipped their hand in the, in the harasheth with the bitter herbs and so forth, they, they still had no, no idea who it was. But if we go to John's gospel, we begin to understand more of what happened there. Because there it makes it clear that Jesus was referring to just one of them. And he said in John thirteen eighteen, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. There again, folks, the predetermined plan. It is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. And here he quotes Psalm 41.9. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. A quotation from Psalm 41.9. By the way, that was a reference to an Old Testament parallel of Judas. And his name was Ahithophel. Remember, he was David's trusted friend and advisor who turned coat on David and joined forces with Absalom. So here again, we see the miracle of divine providence. He, he speaks not only of the twelve that he has chosen, but also of Judas, who had been chosen specifically to fulfill this prophecy of Psalm 41.9. A prophecy written 500 years plus earlier. A miracle of miracles once again. To think that God could orchestrate all of the events of history to accomplish what He had decreed. What an amazing and inscrutable mystery. And again, folks, all through Scripture we see the tension between God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility. And to think that God specifically ordained Judas to betray Him. And yet, Judas had a wicked heart. And through his own choices, he was a, he was a consummate thief. He, he was a hypocrite. He was sophisticated in his self-serving, self-absorbed passion to somehow get something out of Jesus, to somehow cash in on the kingdom. And of course, by now, he is utterly disillusioned. Here, Judas, because of his own heart, was the quintessential religious charlatan. Because of his own choices, he was what you might call the prototypical poster boy of all of the spiritual phonies who have ever lived. And yet God used Judas's wickedness to accomplish his predetermined plan. Amazing to me. By the way, isn't it a comfort to know that God controls all of history? That we don't have to make sure we just vote in the right people and so on. Otherwise, we're going to get blown up or something bad. You know, Isn't it good to know that we worship a sovereign God? Now, certainly, He currently allows Satan to reign over this earthly kingdom of darkness. In fact, in 1 John 5.19, we read that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But you know what, folks? Again, as we study Scripture, all of that is part of God's predetermined plan. God has reasons for all of this. And what a joy it is to know that as believers, according to Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So notice we see his purpose here being revealed again in his words in verse 24. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him. Again, uh, reference here to Psalm 41, 9. And as I mentioned earlier, he was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2, 23. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, folks, I, I have to stop here and, and again stand in amazement to think that Judas, Judas now is, is, is hearing all of this. He's hearing this from the Son of God. And he knows that it's the Son of God. He, he, he's hearing God say to him, it would have been better if you'd never been born. And, and you would think that at that point he would fall on his face in repentance. I mean, after all, he had seen Jesus speak food into existence. He had seen him cast out demons. He had seen him heal the sick. He had seen him calm the storm. He had seen him cause withered arms and legs to suddenly become whole. He had seen him speak limbs into existence that before had not been there. He had seen suddenly the blind were able to see and the deaf were able to hear. And folks, he had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. And yet, there's no repentance. Does that tell you anything about what it means to be spiritually dead? And apart from the quickening work of God, people are never going to choose God. And now, with treachery in his heart, in his heart, he, he hears these horrifying words and there's no impact. And worse yet, notice how he keeps up the blasphemous facade in verse 25. Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Gag me. Isn't that sad? And if it offends me, what must it have done to the Son of God? But you know, again, as I think about this, I see this all the time. People who hear the truth of the gospel... They know the invitation of the gospel that they should repent and they should plead for undeserved mercy and that Christ will in His love and grace save them, make them a new creature in Christ, give them all of the, the, the glories of heaven. And what did they say? Nah, it's a bunch of hogwash. I'd rather live for myself. It's beyond me. And like Judas, these are those described in Hebrews 10. Verses 26 and 27. They were the ones that were warned, but yet it says they go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Can you imagine that? And then later on, he, he describes their fate. For these people, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Later on in verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? And folks, what is tragic is to think that there may well be some within the sound of my voice who fall into this very category. So Jesus allows Judas' own words to condemn him. And Jesus responds to Judas' pretense by saying in verse 25, You have said it yourself. By the way, it's obvious that the others didn't hear this exchange because we know later that Peter privately goes to John and, and is asking John to somehow go and, and interrogate Jesus a little bit here to, to find out you know, who is he talking about. We learn more of what happened next from John's Gospel in John 13. Jesus therefore answered, talking to John, saying, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. By the way, it was at that moment, according to John 13:17, that 
we read, Satan then entered into him. When he took the morsel, that's when Satan completely consumed him. And then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Said differently, Satan, Judas, out of here now. And they were gone. By the way, the text reveals that the others still had no idea it was Judas. Only John knew. Only Jesus and Judas and John knew at this point. We read in verses 28 and 29 that uh, they assumed because Jesus had the money, or Judas had the money box, when, in other words, when he left, that Jesus was saying to him, buy things that we have need of for the feast, or else that maybe he was giving something to the poor. They, they, they still didn't know who it was. You know, I often wonder who are the Judases within the midst of the body of Christ, sometimes even perhaps within our own little church. Those who profess Christ but do not possess Him. Those tares amongst the wheat, they look just like the real thing, but they really bear no fruit. Those who have everyone fooled, many times even themselves, and even though they wear a spiritual veneer, they really have no love for Christ. They live only unto themselves. No secret devotion to Him. And dear friend, if that somehow describes you, please hear me. You may fool me. You may fool others. But you will not fool God. So we've seen a miraculous display of divine providence manifested in the Passover transformation We've seen it in the, in the betrayal, treachery, but thirdly, we see it in the promised triumph. By the way, you know, there, there is, I, I've experienced this, maybe you have, and I, I don't want to get too mystical here, but, but I, I've been around this. There's always an eerie sense of tension in a room where evil exists. Where there is some wickedness that maybe you can't put your finger on, but but you experience an indescribable kind of a subjective experience that something's not right. The freedom of worship is, is suddenly gone and nerves get on edge and joy is replaced with anxiety. And I'm sure there must have been some element of that until Judas leaves. I mean, to think that Judas the betrayer was there and Satan was there and now Satan's in him and now they're gone. Judas is gone now, and only of the eleven remain, and I'm sure the mood and the whole direction of the celebration changed. Because, dear friends, now the ancient Passover of the Old Covenant that foreshadowed the coming Lamb of God is going to be transformed into a new memorial, the Lord's Supper, the New Covenant. Notice verses 26 and 29, and while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup he had given th and given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. You see, friends, here, all of the traditional aspects of Passover, which ultimately were, were symbols pointing to the Lamb of God and the New, company, uh, new Covenant, now suddenly... All of this symbolism is radically altered. I mean, no longer, for example, would the unleavened bread represent just the need for the, the separation from the influences of, of a sinful world. But now it would re represent the sacrificial body of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Luke 22 verse 19 says, given for you. And now the wine would symbolize not just the blood of an animal, a suitable uh, substitute that was used in the ancient sacrifices with... Uh, by the way, it was a, a practice that God instituted to, to ratify covenants. We saw it with, with, with Noah and Abraham and Moses and so on. All of which pointed to the blood of Christ, but now, ultimately, it symbolizes His very blood. The old covenant now is becoming obsolete. Now... Christ will become our Passover, as the Scripture teaches. And His atoning work now will be the basis for salvation. The salvation for all who have trusted solely in God for forgiveness. 
By the way, even those Old Testament saints who knew really nothing of Christ, but they were saved in the same way. The cross ultimately was there for their sins as well. By the way, it was for this reason that Jesus spoke to the unbelieving Jews concerning the new covenant reality through his atoning work in John 8:56, saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, folks, think about this as we wrap this up this morning. What a joy it is when we come around the Lord's table. A perpetual reminder of His work and His grace on our behalf. There we come and we eat His body. Now, not literally. I mean, we don't want to get into transubstantiation as the Roman Catholics do. I mean, that's cannibalism. That's paganism at its worst. But rather... The symbolism is this, that because He has given Himself to us, we symbolically feast upon Him. We take Him into ourselves. We, we, we become one with Him when we are saved. He is in us. We are in Him. The Bible teaches us that He is our life. We exist in and through Him. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory as we read in Colossians 1.27. And in so doing, we even drink the blood of the new covenant. That's when we are reminded of our sin and the inconceivable price that was paid for our redemption. And at His table, we are reminded also that we are His people and He is our God. This is a time when we come together and we, we commune with Him. An intimate fellowship. What do we do when we want to have great fellowship with one another? We get together and we eat. It's the same idea here. And we enjoy the fellowship with one another. And at the Lord's table now, in this new memorial that the Lord is giving, this is a perpetual reminder of the eternal banquet and the eternal fellowship and communion that will be ours someday. Spurgeon said it so well, and I quote, We agree that we will be the Lord's people when we come to the table. Henceforth, not the devil's, not the world's, not our own, but the Lord's people. When the Lord's people are chastened, we expect to be chastened with them. When the Lord's people are persecuted, we expect to be persecuted with them. We must take them for better or worse to have and to hold. And death itself must not part us from the Lord's people. That is the meaning of coming To the table, recognizing that between you and God, there is an agreement made that must not be broken. A covenant ordered in all things and sure by which God becomes yours and you become his so that you are forever to be one of those that belong wholly to him. That a wonderful quote. So I hope we will never forget these sacred truths that we will take them into our hearts and let them mold us evermore into the conformity of Christ. But notice here again the miracle of divine sovereignty at work. Christ's promised triumph in verse 29. He says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now again, remember, Jesus longed to be with the disciples during this time. He was preparing them for what was about to come. And here, what He's doing is giving them a great promise that would give them hope and stability, that would sustain them during their lives and ministry, especially what was about to happen in the next several days. And even sustain them during their martyrdom. Because literally what Jesus is saying here, my my dear disciples, I am going to return and establish the kingdom that you guys have been longing for for so long. It's going to come. You've got to be patient. It's coming. It's all according to my predetermined plan. And what I'm doing right now in this memorial that I I am now inaugurating is I am giving you a perpetual reminder of not only my sacrificial death, but of my promised return. All right? I'm going to come again. And I'm going to drink this with you in the kingdom. By the way, it tells us that's going to be something we're going to celebrate during the millennial kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Beloved, the Lord's Supper is our remembrance of redemption and and, and the hope of that which awaits us in glory. 
And then I find it so, so interesting at the very close here, the very last verse of our text, verse 30, it says, and after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Folks, isn't this a precious conclusion to this most solemn and joyous celebration? Please think of this. Just before the Lord Jesus crosses over the Cadron Valley and the brook Cadron that is now flowing red with the blood of thousands of sacrificial lambs, therefore reminding Him of His own blood, just before He goes up that Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane to sweat great drops of blood in anguish because of what He is about to endure, what does He do? He sings a hymn. He sings a hymn. Folks, only the redeemed can have this in their heart. And I must hasten to add, you know all of the trite little choruses that we sing? There's a place for some of those from time to time. But folks, they will never sustain you in the crucible of grace. They will never sustain you. I've been there. Many of you have. You want to know what they sang? There's a high probability that they sang Psalm 118 at the end of the Hallel. This was normally what they would do. I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to read just a portion of this as we close this morning in honor of what transpired on that glorious night. In Psalm 118, I'm not going to read all of it. I'll just give you some pieces of it. It begins, Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. And then notice there towards the end. Verse 19. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to Thee, for Thou hast answered me, and Thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, from verses 25 and on, you will recall this is what the multitudes said loudly together when he entered Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. And now they're singing it before his triumph at the cross. Verse 25, O Lord, do save, which would be translated Hosanna. O Lord, do save, we beseech Thee. O Lord, we beseech Thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed You from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God and I give Thee thanks. I give thanks to Thee. Thou art my God. I extol Thee. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For His loving kindness is everlasting. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank You, Father, for these glorious truths. May they find lodging in our hearts and bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.